This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. To those listening, welcome. As we explore wonders and mysteries and journey into the realm of unknown. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Realm of Unknown podcast. I am your host, Shane, and if you are new here, the Realm of Unknown podcast is a collection of just weird, paranormal, bizarre, nonsense-type topic podcasts. And uh, this month, we have specifically been focusing on conspiracy theories, so we will be doing another one of those today. But beforehand, we just have a quick little rundown of some stuff, I guess. Uh, You know, topic-wise, discussion-wise, no real updates for this month. Uh, Overall, though, I am trying to make February... Or not February, my god. (laughs) It's not February just yet. I'm trying to make the fall of this year be a bit more productive overall. Really manage out my time a bit better. uh, Balancing, you know, work personal life, the podcast, all that sorts of stuff. And so far, it's been going pretty good. I think I've been doing an okay job with it. But I really do want to push the podcast a bit more, uh, hence why I'm doing double uploads for the weeks. Uh, Obviously, lumping in the Keystone Curiosity series, getting some more uploads over onto the Patreon for all those that want some exclusive bonus series. And then I'm trying to get it back onto social media a bit more, a bit more consistently. Obviously, I'm on Twitter for the most part, but showcasing the podcast and some of the topics that we discuss back onto platforms such as TikTok and YouTube specifically, so that the general podcast episodes could reach a broader audience. So if you're listening to this over on YouTube, hopefully uh, within the fall of 2022, I have officially caught up on backlogging everything and getting the audio paired up with some video stuff. Uh, Personally, I just avoided video for the most part. I just don't... It's just a lot of work. It's a lot of work to get video kind of worked up. And uh, it's not... It was something I did in the beginning, obviously, with YouTube, but it's not something I was able to consistently do moving forward because it was a lot of work. But that's most of what, uh, goodness, I'm adjusting. Uh, that's most of what we have for today when it comes to kind of catch up and recap stuff. Uh, there's no promotions or shout outs for this episode. Moving forward, we may. I'm going to try to get a few more promo reads to, to go out there from fellow podcasts. So expect that in the future. But for today, uh, judging by the title that you've probably already read, you are more than likely aware of what today's topic is. And uh, it's a it's a good one. It's a classic one, but I wanted to add a different spin to it because this has been done to death, especially in recent years. This went viral on TikTok specifically and YouTube and all over the place on social media. 
and lots of podcasts have discussed this. Uh, personally, I have listened to several of them, and ironically, or I guess uh, coincidentally, the most recent upload of uh, Astonishing Legends, which is a show that I I do like a lot and was one of the key inspirations to make a podcast myself, their most recent episode was actually Missing 411, which is the topic that we're going to do today. I have not listened to it at all. I have not downloaded it. I have not even read the episode description. I, the moment I saw that it was Missing 411, I was like, God damn it. <laughs> but I can't keep shifting around, obviously, uh, episode topics based off of larger shows and what they cover. Uh, but I, I do find it coincidentally ironic that every time I do like a themed month, uh, so like this is the conspiracy theory month, um, every time I do a, a themed month, it just so happens that some of the larger shows that I listen to that month, even though I have stuff, you know, researched, written, and planned to be recorded, will just drop that episode. And nine times out of ten, it's a show that does not like announce ahead of time. Astonishing Legends probably announced it ahead of time, um, but I did not get the chance to listen to their other most recent episode, which was on number stations. Uh, I have it downloaded. I just haven't listened to it yet. So they probably gave a heads up about Missing 411. Um, but let's just get into this uh, and I'll detail kind of how I'm going to be handling this and how we're going to sort of look at this stuff. Uh, because this is a conspiracy theory uh, at its core, and this was something that I was actually introduced to back in 2020 uh, when I was working at my previous job. This was brought up by my boss and my coworkers uh, and some of the clients that we had in the office. I, I found it very fascinating, obviously, because I was into all this sort of stuff, but I didn't really question it too much at that time. But the missing 411, uh, a brief rundown of the general theory is what we're going to be talking about first. Um, but we're not going to go too in-depth with the specific, um, you know, case-by-case -case scenarios of the, of the theory. If you want to listen to that stuff, either A, pick up the books, but we'll talk about those. So the do documentary with a grain of salt. Or listen to some of the other podcasts that discuss this. Obviously, Astonishing Legends will probably have a fantastic coverage of this story. Uh, and I'm sure they do go into some of the cases. So if you do want to go into the case aspect of it, go into that. Because we're going to more so look at this in a different light. At least from, a, from what I've noticed so far. From my personal experience of listening to the story, from hearing the story from other shows, from podcasts or YouTube videos that cover it, or even articles that really go into it specifically, like of the topic itself, they, they oftentimes don't look at it in a strictly skeptical view. And I don't mean it in like, oh, they're breaking it apart, they're, they're you know, tearing it down or whatever. They're just looking at it by taking a step back and just kind of asking the whole general question of like why, essentially, and we'll bring that up later. Because if you are familiar with the missing 411 case, uh, you're, you're, let me just give you the basic general overview of the theory first, and then we'll talk about that. And then we'll get into my you know, breakdown of how I'm going to be structuring this episode. So the general basics of the theories go as followed. That people 
are essentially going missing from American national parks or national parks across the globe under mysterious circumstances and that ultimately the National Park Service is obstructing attempts to investigate these events. This is all being presented and was first coined as a term and theory by uh, a series of books with a similar name, Missing 411, by a, an ex-police officer of the name David Politis, or Pilates. I'm going to call him Politis. So if you're familiar with the theory itself, you'll know that it's essentially a collection of case studies uh, for the most part. It's broken into a series of books. Obviously, we're going to talk about some of the early ones for the most part. But I believe there's like almost a dozen books. There's a documentary, there's films, etc. But the theory itself is just what I just said, missing people in national parks specifically, and some possible cover-up from the National Park Service. But aside from that, it's kept rather broad, and we will talk about that. Even though it claims to narrow it down, it, it's just very, it's a very weird collection of how these sort of things are uh, tied together. So a few key points for people who are like, you know, outside of the United States who are not familiar with this sort of stuff, uh, or maybe never even heard of the story or heard of any of the aspects of it. First off, the U.S. National Park Service and the U.S. National Parks, I should say first, <laughs> Uh, is a land designation here in the U.S. Uh, it's federal land that is designated as a park. Uh, they are generally run by, as we mentioned, the U.S. National Park Service, which is a federal agency that manages national parks and other national monuments, natural, historical, or recreational properties of the sort. They can obviously vary in title and destination. For example, uh, as a park, you know, Yosemite or Yellowstone, uh, or if you want a more national monument type thing, obviously you could probably think of like the Washington Monument down in D.C., or if you're here in Philadelphia, a good example would be the Independence Mall location, uh, which is the area that stretches between Independence Hall and is those kind of three blocks of fields up until I believe it's the Constitution Museum. But a lot of historical locations have them, and you'll generally see them because they look like park rangers. Next little key point, the, the whole 411 aspect of the name, uh, while it's not necessarily, from what I can understand, specifically established as to what it actually is, most people, and what it seems like most people have come to the conclusion of, is that the 411 aspect of the name refers to information. More specifically, it refers to the information service from a few decades back for the U.S. and for Canada, uh, in which you could call the local directory assistance, which was dialing 411. I don't think it's technically still around nowadays. I could be wrong, though. But overall, the missing 411 roughly translates to what it would be just missing information or missing info. Uh, so it, it, that's just another way of saying it. But most people call it missing 411 because that's what the series is. Now, again, there are about like a dozen books from the series now from Politis, along with, again, films and documentaries. There's a number of guest appearances on podcasts and radio shows that David has done. Primarily, though, keep in mind that a lot of these 
shows and podcasts happen to be more conspiracy theory leaning ones or paranormal ones like ourselves, which, you know, I very much am lumped into this, but I would not deem them the most credible source. Maybe not, you know, the host or whatever, but the structure of the shows generally lead to a more, you know, questionable narrative from behind the scenes. Uh, and that's just, that's me looking at myself uh, as a retrospective as well, obviously. Where was I in my notes? <laughs> I'm like completely losing my track. I wrote so much stuff for this one. Yeah, so so primarily we're going to be looking at the earlier years before most of the, I believe, the documentary and a lot of the guest appearances. Mainly the books that were released in the early 2010s, which was when Pelias came forward with them and with the theories. Um, and with these early book installments, uh, Pelias classified over 1,400 Missing person cases under the Missing 411 umbrella. At the center of the theory, Missing 411 was a, or I should say has a lot of prerequisites in order to classify it as such. However, even within these, it's still somehow, again, very broad and also very vague at the same time, which is odd, again. Ultimately, the whole collection of books is more of a presentation of questions, uh, presenting everything as a, you know, as a good quote, as like something unusual occurring related to deaths and disappearances in national parks. They keep it in this weird question phase of things rather than actually presenting like what, the, again, the why aspect of the case they they just showcase the case and then say that because it's unsolved therefore it's mysterious um and we will talk about that later as to why it's not really but again don't expect the books to go super super in depth as to the why and the how of the disappearances questions are presented kind of like wording is kind of leaning one way kind of leaning the other it's not very decisive for the most part it's just presenting the case and like the narrative of that case and then stopping because uh, again these are missing persons cases so we don't know the conclusion to a lot of them but we do in a few and they're still classified as missing 411 so it, it's very weird it's very convoluted however um Again, Politis does tend to stay away from the why aspect of things and s almost subsequently pushes, because he doesn't pursue the why aspect too much, he kind of pushes into the whole unusualness of things and pushes into the whole like, hey, this is a mysterious case, but why is it a mysterious case? I don't know, it's a mysterious case type stuff. Which again, it's due to a lot of different scenarios and a lot of different reasons but because of this vagueness it has led missing 411 the theory itself to be tied into a number of other conspiracies and supernatural quote-unquote explanations which we will talk about towards the tail end of this episode as i've broken down a lot of these things uh, but just keep that in mind because it it, it's a natural progression for most conspiracy theories that the vaguer it is and the broader it is, the more other conspiracies it will lump into it and slowly add into its narrative. It is 
very, very easy to fall down rabbit holes of theories based off of other theories. It's it's fascinating. It's a fascinating study into how it's kind of done. Um, and, and finally, too, before I get into the general requirements of what classifies a missing 411 case, uh, and then afterwards, the kind of breakdown of skepticism on some of the matters. I do want to mention something. I'm not calling him out on the matter, but I just want to mention that before he was known for the missing 411 and after he was a police officer, David Polites was known for a series of books known as North American Bigfoot Search, which again was an assortment of books and interviews that focused on Bigfoot in North America. And again, I'm not calling him out, but the books have faced some rough feedback on the credibility of sources that were mentioned within it. So, you know, this guy went from being an ex-cop to being known as the Bigfoot dude to now being known as the missing person dude. Uh, Allegedly because he was told by a park ranger who I don't even think has ever been known. But, But to be fair, he has... He has done the research, and we will talk about that during the skeptical aspect of things. <laughs> I keep saying we'll talk about it, but it's just very important to know that like, the way I've broken this up is just how it is. But again, I'm not, I'm not targeting his, his credibility on the matter. I just want to put that out there as a perspective thing, because I think a lot of cases it's not ever mentioned or brought up or even told to you. And I think it is good to know more of the, you know, overall narrative and and information aspect of things uh, in order to come to a conclusion yourself. Because if you didn't know that, you would just know that he was a cop and he does this. Like, most of the sites don't really even mention that, like, hey, he did Bigfoot stuff before he went to missing person stuff. Uh, But it's just something to mention. So, the next little segment of my notes is the general requirements. Now, keep in mind... That even though these are what I deem general requirements and some of the community has deemed as general requirements to what a missing 411 case is, these do not classify all of the missing 411 cases and these are just a kind of good medium. Not every case hits all these marks. Some of these cases don't hit any of these marks. Some of the cases hit marks that are not listed here, and some of them only hit parts of them and then have a variety of different aspects to them. So, yeah, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of variety and uh, variability between different cases that are quote-unquote missing 411. Because, again, this is a made-up term. This is a made-up classification. Uh, David Polites is the one who came up with this classification. So we have to do our best to kind of give these requirements to see how he has created them. Um, first off, first and foremost, uh, the one thing that is shared between, if not most, or if not all, most of the cases, is that it occurred within a national park here in the U.S. Again, we're focusing on the books that focus on the U.S., but the missing 411 can be applied to national parks across the globe. Uh, specifically, it is generally rural locations or wooded locations. These are not national parks or landmarks within cities or urban spaces, which, you know, obviously rules out a bunch of cases. But 
I guess we're narrowing it down. Additionally, individuals who are deemed missing with 411s are oftentimes vulnerable, such as being a child or an elderly person, or they are disabled or sick in some way, shape, or form, whether this is obviously mentally disabled or physically disabled. Regardless, it's just like the weaker people of the pack type mentality. Unsolved cases, whether or not the individual was found or that their bodies were located, uh, if at all, just have to be unsolved or, you know, to their... They have to have the unsolved moniker to their disappearance. But as you'll see later, like, not all of the missing person, missing 411 cases are unsolved disappearances. Some of them are solved. Some of them are found alive. So it's it's very weird. Dogs are often involved. Uh, sometimes they're with the victim and they're involved within the missing 411 case itself. But more specifically, what we will focus on is the aspect that dogs, again, specifically uh, tracking dogs, involved in the case of the missing 411 recovery or, you know, research of it, are either unable to or cannot track the individual. Uh, and we will talk about that later. Odd weather occurrences happening shortly after the person goes missing, which end up delaying the investigation. Now, this can be rain, you know, thunderstorms, snowstorms. It just has to be a weather event that occurs around the time that the person goes missing. Some of the cases, it occurs when the person goes missing, before they go missing, a few hours after they go missing, two days after they go missing. Again, it's very broad. It is very, very broad to what can be determined under this big umbrella. It's essentially a tarp at this point. And then finally, bodies, if they are found, um, again, a lot of these cases, they're found alive or they're not found at all. But in the cases that the body is discovered and the individual is unfortunately found dead, they are found in bizarre locations or states that make little sense, uh, such as having little to no clothing when they despite, you know, being in a cold environment or whatever. If they are found alive, they are in a sort of disjointed, confused state. Keep in mind, again, as we mentioned at the top of this, all of these are still drastically, drastically involved with a lot of variety. Uh, you don't need to have any of these to actually be part of the missing 411. Some of the cases don't have any of them at all. Certain cases are chosen and others are not. Again, this is only 1,400 cases for the most part. For Politus's credit, he never outright blames the victims for, you know, their disappearance. Um, in a lot of cases, he mentions that the individual involved was relatively healthy, that they had general experience with the outdoors because there are cases involving hunters and hikers and runners and outdoorsmen. But, as you probably are noticing, uh, one of our bullet points is the fact that there are missing children or elderly adults or sick or injured people, which generally counteracts the idea that, hey, these are healthy, experienced individuals going missing. So why is there a weird prerequisite for it to be sick or vulnerable individuals? It's 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 so it's so convoluted, and I am doing my best to kind of narrow down the narrative of everything. 
again, this went viral on social media. This went viral on TikTok of all places. And once it goes viral on TikTok, you are bound to realize that everyone is going to present cut and pasted information and picking and choosing little bits to kind of, you know, goat the algorithm and get their, their little story up there first uh, because... Good lord, it's a lot. It it is very, it's it's so broad. It's so so broad. So moving next into things is going to be our kind of like final aspect of stuff: the skeptical breakdown, essentially, of the overall missing four in one narrative. Uh, so first off, I I do want to mention and I do want to give some credit to Kyle Pollock, who is one of the hosts from the Dark Skeptic podcast. Uh, He did a pretty fantastic breakdown of his, you know, skeptical viewpoint of the missing 411 cases. I believe he presented it in 2017 after initially finding it in 2016. And again, this was shortly after, uh, I believe the fourth book was was released at the time. Um, I will link in the resource notes uh, some of that cross analysis, the presentation that he did. Him having this sort of skeptical viewpoint, he is a good starting point, I felt, to kind of structure out how I want to break this down. Some of the things he brought up end up being bullet points that I then provide additional data points for, or opinions, yes, my opinions, (laughs) on some of the information that Pilatus presents, and specifically how he presents it, um, because I think that's the one thing I personally was hung up on when I first learned about these stories, because, again, it's very broad, it's very vague, it's in this weird limbo state of asking a question but not really presenting a end point to it. It's very weird, it's very bizarre, um, and again, he keeps it so open that it leads for a lot of these conspiracies to go into so first off before i get into any of the bullet points that i have noted out here um, i do want to give credit that well i should say i want to give credit to both pollock and politis because they both did this (laughs) um politis obviously looked into the cases initially but pollock fact-checked the the idea that all of these cases presented are in fact real missing person or disappearance cases that from what i can understand has never been a question or a talking point as to whether or not these were missing people no one i from what i can understand and from from my research uh has questioned whether or not politis has made up any of these cases from what we can understand, these are all real. These are all real people who went missing one way or another, whether or not they were found or whether or not they were found dead. These were all real. The parts that we're going to be sort of critically looking at is, again, how Politis presents the information. For the most part, these are case breakdowns, so it is just basic information. The little itty-bitty nuanced like segments that he puts into his book where he kind of does throw in his own little, you know, vague question or vague talking point uh, or presents like a line or, or there was a really good example of an interview that he, he put one of the interview quotes in there and the person literally 
mentioned a conspiracy theory. Like they brought up a conspiracy theory about a long lost alien hybrid race under a specific mountain in, uh, I believe, central or uh, in Western, in the Western Americas. Which, again, like he doesn't provide the why or the how, and he doesn't necessarily go into and say that these are conspiracies and that there is this big, you know, conspiracy narrative to things, or that there is this supernatural element to things. But he leaves these little little nuggets here and there that, like, very much lead into that that overall narrative. Uh, and obviously the people he's interviewing even mention it. I think it was... Oh, what was it? It, it? it was the it was the Lemurian theory about Lemurians living underneath a Mount Shasta because the individual, in a specific case in his book, went missing on Mount Shasta, and he, you know, he's like, we don't really know what happened to him. We might never know what happened to him. But then he leaves in a quote from an individual from like a local that says, "Well, you know, David, like." There's always stories about the Lemurians living underneath the mountains, and maybe they just got, insert name of case person here, maybe they just got him one day. And then that's the end of the quote. Like, it's so, it's so strange. I don't know. It, it's, 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 it's weird. It's, it's, again, it's fascinating. I love, this is why I love conspiracy theories, because it is so deep and so interconnected. But I do get very frustrated with it, because they keep it so broad, and then if you call them out in any way shape or form people do get upset <laughs> but moving on uh let's just go into the bullet points that i have listed here and some of the key aspects that do not get brought up from what i can understand they, they do not get brought up in the books they do not get brought up in most of the narrative on the matter uh they only get brought up on more skeptical outlooks and in some cases i have not seen people bring in these bullet points uh some of them are more recent bullet points granted uh, but if you look into most missing phone one on its own, even if you look into the basic Wikipedia, uh, they don't really, they don't really mention this too much. Uh, and I think it is good to again have that context because context is everything. So the first little bullet point that I have is undressing. So Politus, as I mentioned, uh, as one of the prerequisites to get into the missing four one one umbrella, is very quick in several of the cases to point out that voluntary removal of clothing or clothing items in general is irrational, that it is highly irrational in most circumstances that, you know, the individual would never do this. They would have no reason to remove their clothing, you know, out in the woods. And this is why they're found this way. It's very weird. It's very weird. There's no explanation. However, I'm sure most of the listeners here are more than likely aware primarily from other stories out there and other podcasts that do similar topics are familiar of a specific phenomena known as paradoxical undressing. It's not the most well-researched phenomena, obviously, because oftentimes it occurs very shortly before death. So we can't obviously research it too in-depthly, but it's tied in with hyperthermia, which in this case, the individual gets so, so, so cold that again, their body is basically dying at this point. 
that they get this sensation that their entire body is extremely hot to the point where they feel like they are literally burning up and that they will strip their clothing in order to quote unquote cool off. But it's not an actual heat. It's all subconscious. It's just your body pretty much trying desperately to keep you alive in one way, shape, or form. And the idea that Politus doesn't mention this in his book, because this isn't like a super unknown thing. Like, I know it's, it's not super highly researched, but it's known. And it's known within cases that occurred, you know, decades prior to the books that Politus wrote. So the idea that he, he like does not mention it, from what I can understand, at all. If, if he does, it's very few times. Uh, he makes it seem like it's this, you know, unnatural thing that could never occur. That no one would ever have any reason to take off their clothing, you know, if they're super cold or if they're in an environment that is inhospitable. So it's, it's again, that, that conspiracy theory picking and choosing of information and picking and choosing of what to present, that is kind of why I question the Mystic of 411 stuff. Um, and and we, we will get to my personal, like, final conclusion on the matter at the very end, uh, but just keep that in mind. Uh, so the second bullet point that I have is the tracking dogs, or just the dogs in general. So let's include, or, or let's discuss some of the looseness that occurs uh, within the overall classification of the phrase, uh, particularly with, again, the tracking dogs. One of the requirements goes that canine rescue dogs may not be able to pick up on the scent of the missing individual involved in the case. Again, this is, if this is true in a case, you know, if they are not able to find them or pick up on the scent, then that case or this part of it is presented as evidence as a missing 411. However, if the dogs were involved and they did the opposite, they were able to track the individual, uh, regardless if they were able to discover them or not, they were just able to track them. Ultimately, it's not presented as a part of the missing 411 phenomena. It's just ignored, really. It's a key example of, again, the picking and choosing of a lot of this, because as we will get into it, the amounts, or I should say the percentage of dogs who don't pick up on stuff is very specific. And And I do think that this selective narrative does skew the overall story. Now, now, keep in mind, too, there are a variety of things that could throw all of this into chaos, especially for, like, dog tracking. As mentioned earlier, one of the other categorization prerequisites of a missing 411 uh, is strange weather occurrences. Whether it's a rain or thunderstorm or a snowstorm and blizzard, you know, they all obscure the tracking process and may, might make it so that you can't go out there for several days, which obviously will make it a lot harder for dogs to track, which it's just a natural, you know, causality type thing that is not mentioned when presenting this as quote-unquote evidence. Like, 
if they are paired up together, they'll be like, oh, yeah, it rained. And then the dogs couldn't track it. But it's like, well, yeah, but how long did it rain? How long after did the dogs get brought into the mix? Were the dogs trained, as we'll break down information uh, in a moment? Who was handling the dogs? What's the dog's track record? Is this a highly trafficked area? Do they have a scent to go off of? Uh, again, it, there's so many additional questions and factors that just don't get presented at all. Uh, it's not like, you know, they're, they're, they're presenting it briefly or they're presenting it and then going against it. They're just not presenting those additional questions. They're just not giving that added uh, context. So I did come across a fairly interesting uh, Harvey research study that specifically went into testing the accuracy of tracking dogs. Um, there is apparently a slight difference between like the variety of what classifies a tracking dog. But in this particular study, they they broke it into two classifications. One being a, uh, a novice tracking dog and a veteran tracking dog. So what they determine as a novice dog is one that has less than a year and a half of professional training. A veteran dog is one that has over a year and a half of professional training and also has at least one or more uh you know uses with law enforcement on a case or a rescue so they have to have been professionally trained and also been in the field uh to be considered a veteran again almost two years worth of training so for this harvey research study they conducted a set of five trials with a pairs of individuals who went off, did their thing, you know, were dummies for like the missing person, whatever. And the trails that they used were anywhere between half a mile to a mile and a half as their kind of case study. This was all, you know, in a range of, of territory, uh, territories, of terrains, uh, some having high foot traffic, some not having high foot traffic, and they just ran this over and over. The one baseline, too, that they also used uh, is the idea that they always went into it 48 hours after the location was known. So this was always a baseline that the dogs would go in two days after the individuals went through the trails. And finally, the dog handlers were not aware of what the trails were. They, they were going in blind, essentially. So what were the outcomes? Overall, veteran dogs did have a 96% find rate, an overall find rate of being able to pick up on the scent and follow it. And there were no false identifications, which in this particular context is not, you know, that they didn't pick it up because that's the 4%. Uh, false identification is that they picked up on the scent either falsely or picked up on a different scent and went off in a different direction, essentially. So that would be considered a false identification. So that's a fairly good success rate. Obviously, there's still a 4% margin of error. But again, as we mentioned before, the missing 411 cases don't factor in the idea that, hey, the dogs were able to pick up the scent, we just never found them. So that 96%, if those 96% had cases, obviously, this is not the actual data of real cases. I'm just applying it to 
a theoretical case. If one of those cases fell within the 96%, but the individual was not found, this was not considered a missing 411, or this isn't considered evidence of a missing 411. So it, it just provides, again, context. Context is the biggest thing from this episode. But what about the, the novice dogs? What about the non-veterans? So this is a shocking, or I shouldn't say shocking, because uh, obviously they're not professionals. They had one false identification within their mix, and they had an overall success rate of 53.3%. 53%. Just just barely over flipping a coin. Which, again, to be fair, these weren't like first-day dogs. These weren't like dogs that had no training. These weren't dogs that had like a week of training. These were dogs that could have had training up until a year and a half. A year and a half of professional training. And they still had a 50% success rate. Like that, that's, that's, that's huge. That's a huge margin of error. And, and, and something else that I found from a variety of sources, and I have the source file link uh, down in the description below for all the you know, articles, websites, books, and stuff that I, I've used to research this. Their citations will be down there. Another point that I came across in a few of these studies is the idea that there are a, a variety of factors, obviously, that go into a lot of these cases. And the same goes with aspects of the case, such as tracking dogs. There's a variety of different types of tracking dogs that are used. There's different dogs, obviously, within that. There's handlers that are different, that are more experienced, that are less experienced, that might have a better relationship with the dog or not. Overall, law enforcement trained uh, canines have a better success rate, but on average, from what I can understand, and is noted, again, in a few of these articles and research studies, is that overall, even though uh, law enforcement trained canines have a better success rate, more often than not, recreationally trained tracking dogs are brought in to, to be used on the case. Uh, and obviously, this has to do with, again, a variety of different reasons. More often than not, it falls under the, you know, a more rural setting where law enforcement might not have a canine unit. And if they do have a canine unit, they're not tracking dogs. Canine units are not, you know, woodland tracking dogs that can you know, or, or go up into the mountains and, and hike through the snow. Like, they're trained in, in completely different scenarios. Like, sniffing dogs are not going to be tracking dogs. Drug mule dogs are not going to be tracking dogs. You know, there there's a complete variety and spectrum of, of dog training out there that have to be factored into the mix. And I, I just find that fascinating because, again, this is not presented in the books this is not presented from what i can understand and from what i've, I've read so far uh again we're only looking at a few of the books there's like three times more of the books out there so maybe in the more recent books he doubles back on things uh we are just talking about these early 2000 or 2010 books these are not presented like th this amount of variety and this amount of margin of error uh, this amount of wiggle room to what is essentially one of the key criterias is not brought up. Like, I didn't know that, hey, 
you know, law enforcement has a better track record, but they sometimes bring in third party dogs. They bring it, you know, whether or not it's a third party that specifically trains in tracking dogs or some Joe Schmo who is a contractor that maybe did get training and has an old dog now that was maybe used with law enforcement, but we don't know how effective they actually are. Like, you know, like there's so many varieties to it that I, I just, I'm baffled that they aren't brought into the narrative more often. So I'm rambling a lot. <laughs> this is going to be a very long episode. Uh, we still have a few bullet points to get through. So the next up is the overall classification of disappearing in a national park. This is the key institute, the key, you know, cornerstone classification for this theory and pretty much is the foundation of the entire, you know, theory and book series and document. Everything came off of this. Personally, I think this is probably the weakest aspect of the overall theory it is by far the most hand-selected aspect of it as we will get into towards the end or as we will get through for this bullet point i should say because it so 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 specifically narrows in on national parks again secluding a lot of rural or uh, uh, sorry uh secluding a lot of the urban national parks and landmarks uh which do technically fall under the same classification and just it's a lot uh, it's a lot um and again there's little to no context that truly goes into the overall disappearance phenomena they are just simply disappearances and that's all they are in the book uh we don't go too much further into them and sometimes people are found so they are solved yet they're still considered missing 411. It's a, it's a lot. So there's a lot of narratives that make it seem like not all of these can be explained, you know, by a mundane explanation uh, within the books. So they, they sometimes bring it up. They sometimes don't. They often use the verbiage of like, now, like, this is just an example. It's like, some of these cases could be explained by, but you know, they use it in that sort of context of just like, well, it could be this. I'm not saying it is. Some people say it is. But they never outright give an explanation. So they don't, you know, outright say, I think this person fell off a cliff or I believe an animal attack occurred or I believe this person succumbed to the weather or the elements. They will never outright say that. Obviously, third-party people like myself will say that, but the books themselves will never say that. They will never give you... Uh, the likely outcome or a possible outcome. They just keep it very vague. This is used very, very often, this sort of vagueness, in pretty much a, no a numerous amount of Politis' cases, uh, where he almost, again, minimizes them as a possibility by keeping everything a possibility. Uh, and I think that's a good representation of what I personally think Missing 411 is, that anything could be a Missing 411, Technically, but technically it can't. But technically it could, you know, and that's just conspiracies overall. That's nothing new. But to put some of these numbers into perspective, because again, if you look into the missing 411 on its own, this is barely ever mentioned, if at all. Again, by at least from my experience, um, 
from the individuals I've talked to on the topic. Uh, again, I was introduced to this. This was never, ever, ever presented to me uh, when being told the information. None of the YouTube videos that I've looked at really cover this. Some of the podcasts that I've listened to mention this or do cover it, but not all of them. For sure, most of the goddamn TikTok viral coverage, all those kids out there that like definitely are not actually presenting facts on the matter, they're just picking and choosing weird aspects of cases. They for sure do not cover this. Um, like they really do not cover this. And that's where, unfortunately, uh, a lot of the coverage for Missing 411 blew up over on TikTok, um, even though they don't present this. So as a reminder, uh, from what we are covering and what Plytus covers uh, in the earlier books is around 1,400 missing or disappearing cases. Uh, on average, though, let's just you know, give it a bit more of a broader scope. Let's do 1,400 to 1,600 disappearances or, again, unsolved cases because some of them there are found alive, some of them they are found dead, but they're still found. So even that alone, that's three varieties of things or four, I guess, technically, you know, found alive, found dead, or not found at all. So three, three varieties that could be classified as a missing 411. But what I have not mentioned, and this is, I specifically did not mention this in the beginning, because again, the books don't mention this. The The overall narrative does not mention this. They, they don't want to actually mention this because it does not look good for the overall theory. That 1400, all the cases that get presented and on the books and stuff, as you're probably thinking, it's like, hey, these, you know, these books were released in the 2010s, early 2010s. You know, probably this is from cases from the early 2000s, maybe the late 90s and 80s, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good guess. It's a good thought. You would assume that. Uh, but no, no. Th these cases, some of them date back well into the 1800s. The 1800s. That, that's how far back this goes. The, the key conspiracy aspect of this, the quote-unquote enemy of all of this, the National Park Service, that wasn't even made and founded until 1916. It was unofficially founded until 1916, but some of the quote-unquote cases that are classified as, you know, missing 411 date before them. And again, it's almost 200 years. So put that into perspective that Politis' cluster of cases range almost 200 years. Some of them, you know, with several decade gaps between them in the same area. And they'll be like, ooh, did you see that? And it's like, okay. Some within the same year, some within the same month. Again, some could be literally like 50 years apart. It is a huge variety. And it's just a, such a big time frame to, to be pulling from. Uh, and to make it be like, oh, this is, you know, these can't be coincidences. These can't be a thing. You know, it, 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 they're so bizarre. They can't, you know, not be this. My man, it's, that's almost, you know, I can't do the math in my head. Uh, 1,400, you know, for 200 years, that's 70 cases every year, give or take. I guess I could be wrong. That, that, that math doesn't sound right. But, but overall, in perspective of things, this is minuscule. 
I, I know that sounds dark or wrong because again these are real cases that's never been questioned these are real people these are real events these did happen but in perspective of how the overall numbers are this is nothing like this is almost nothing to put into perspective because again i do the research might be not be like professional super deep research but it's still research uh, that, again, is not presented in the books and is not given for context. According to Freedom of Information reports, ones that we have been able to compile, the two national parks with the most missing persons cases between the years of uh, 2018 and 2020, so again, that's only like th- two or three years, was the Grand Canyon National Park with 785 search and rescue incidences, or SARs, And in second place, the Yellowstone National Park, which has a reported uh, 732 cases. Now, again, people were found. Not all of these are like, you know, open cases still. These are, for the most part, found people, but are technically missing person cases. That two to three years, that number is almost the same to the entire missing 411 case collection the entire from two national parks two parks and then again 200 years of data to pull from and cases comparing to two to three years in modern times and and in modern times the missing person cases are like down like missing people is an overall thing going down because of technology obviously and communication so you would think that it goes down and that it is going down but you know, fifth, right there, that's 1,500 cases between two parks in three years. But apparently 1,400 cases across 200 years is, you know, a call for alarm, this big conspiracy, this hidden narrative from the, from the park, National Park uh, Association, like all this stuff. It's, it's bizarre. And, and again, to keep adding context to the overall stuff, The two national parks we just mentioned, the Grand Canyon National Park and the Yellowstone National Park, within a year, reportedly, uh, reported respectively, 4.5 and 3.3 million guests in one year. And each one of them only had less than 800 missing people that, again, most of them were found. I don't know. It's just so bizarre to me that why this is catching on as an overall thing. To keep adding on to the minusculeness of things, the National Missing uh, and Unidentified Persons Database reported from data collected between the years of 2007 and 2020 that the national average here in the U.S. of missing persons between, you know, obviously from those years, the medium, is... 600,000 people going missing annually, every year, every year. Uh, There are approximately uh, 4,400 unidentified bodies that are recovered each year. And nationwide, there is roughly 6.5 missing people for every 100,000 people. But again, you know, 1,400, that's the key you only want to look at, but... You know, these other 600,000 every year don't get factored in at all. It's dumb. It's dumb. 
Luckily, though, I mean, yes, again, you know, these are people, these are people's lives, these are real cases. Respectfully, uh, and luckily, the vast majority of missing people do get found. Uh, For example, in 2021, again, this is coming from the information I'm gathering from the National Missings and Unidentified Persons database. In 2021, so last year, 521,705 missing people's cases were reported in the U.S. More than 485,000 of these cases were resolved in 2021, in the same year. Uh, Some of them were obviously resolved this year as it carried over, because the end of 2021 is going to carry over to 2022. And obviously some of them have not been found. And that's sad. That's disappointing. Uh, but another factor to, to keep in mind uh, that is not mentioned, uh, even though it is part of the missing of 411, part of that number that like remaining missing people, they're not missing technically because obviously people are discovered dead and they do get classified as quote unquote resolved cases because they're dead and if they can discover you know why they died it's a closed case but one of the factors that i don't see really get talked about too often is an open case will remain an open case if a discovered body or an unidentified body uh, is not claimed and cannot be resolved as to their death so there are currently 14,000 unidentified or unclaimed bodies. And because of that, they are kept as, you know, classified as open cases. So I found that fascinating. I didn't realize that till this point. And that goes into the overall number of things. So how many of the missing 411 cases are simply unclaimed bodies? Like we know that this body died. We just don't know who it is but it's considered uh, missing 411? I don't know. I don't know that number because obviously I'm not going to go through 1,400 cases case by case. Uh, that's going to take way too long. But again, this is all context. This is all perspective for the overall narrative. But the next bullet point I have is lack of investigation. The biggest draw and the biggest, I guess, conspiracy aspect surrounding the missing of 411 is that the ties to the National Park Service and their quote-unquote lack of investigation into these disappearances. Now, more specifically, it involves people's FOIA requests, which are Freedom of Information Act requests, uh, either being denied or ignored upon the request, uh, or that the case that they do have has little to no information collected. So, obviously, yes, if that's all there is, that's weird. If that's the only context you have, that is weird. This does seem, though, for the most part, to be a somewhat agreed-upon fact within like the overall you know community or whatever. However, they do don't really point out that this may be due to the lack of funding or the lack of manpower in order to conduct these investigations. 
They don't really factor in the lack of evidence during the search as to leading to nothing within these FOIA requests. They don't factor in that, hey, maybe if they were delayed, again, this is a factor in the missing 411. Uh, if they were delayed and the evidence is washed away and evidence is gone, that when they get a almost blank case study or case report, and they're like, why was there no evidence here? Well, my man, one of your requirements is that there was no evidence. So why are you now upset that, that there is none? It's, it's, again, pick and choose, pick and choose. And obviously, you know, I know there's like some narrative where it's like, oh, the National Park Service has no oversight at all to it so that they can do whatever the heck they want. I don't know how credible that is. I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that you know, that's fact or anything. I don't know the various reporting structures of government agencies and how that sort of stuff occurs. I don't think most of the people who report on this know that. Obviously, if you're an expert, sure, whatever. But the people who talk about it who are not experts, like myself, I don't think that we should be claiming that. Ultimately, I cannot verify whether or not, obviously, most of this is true. Most of the FOIA requests that or quote-unquote denied, especially within the books, come from Paulides submitting these requests. So I don't know if perhaps he just has a bad relationship with these people, if he just doesn't know how to do it. I don't know. Again, I can't verify that. I don't know the guy. And I, even though we can verify the cases, I can't verify all of his you know, FOIA submissions and whether or not he got back from people or whether or not he is ignored, or whether or not, like, I can't, no one can verify all that. We can just have to go off of what he says. Um, and ultimately, I don't know if it's as widespread as it's claimed. I just have to go off of what's told. And that's unfortunate. And then the final uh, talking point that kind of wraps this up, as I mentioned earlier on, is the supernatural and conspiracy theory sides of things which is what I think most people kind of latched onto in relation to the missing 411 and kind of what sparked a lot of the interest initially because they're like, ooh, this is a really spooky thing. The woods are spooky, whatever. And, but there, as we mentioned multiple times, there are a bunch of theories that have been tied into why people are going missing. Like almost any theory you could think of has been attached to this new theory. Some people go the more supernatural route uh, rather than the conspiracy sides of things. Some of the explanations are that Bigfoot are kidnapping people out in the woods, particularly in the American Northwest. People are being killed by a predator-like creature, whether it's a cryptid or an alien. Uh, individuals are being abducted by aliens or maybe interdimensional beings. Uh, and in some cases, people are saying that these people are stepping foot into a different dimension or like a time-space slip. Like, it's so, so broad. On the more conspiracy side of those things, um, people say that maybe these missing people stumbled across some sort of government experiment or cover-up site and that they were silenced or taken out uh, or disappeared. Others say that they wandered onto government land somehow because apparently some of these occur not too far away from military or Air Force bases. But again, I, I think that one's pretty weak because the evidence isn't really there too heavily to support that. 
And again, Pilates doesn't lean super hard into these on his book, but he puts these little kind of open forum type styles all throughout it, and it leads naturally to this sorts of stuff. And it's unfortunate because, again, at the end of the day, uh, and this is just my two cents on the matter, regardless of what is going on, these were real people. These were real cases, as we have clarified and verified. And these are real people, real stories, you know, real kids, you know, parents, mothers, fathers, whatever, husbands, girlfriends, wives. These are real people who unfortunately went missing. Unfortunately, they went missing out in the woods, which leads to a variety of different possibilities and different scenarios and depending on what woods they're in like they could be so dense they could be so dense and so out there that we could never find them unless we find bones which unfortunately occurs a lot and and keep in mind like the u.s has and the north america has a lot of you know animals that will eat you whether or not they kill you i don't know but they will eat you if you are dead. Bigger animals that we have here, obviously, we have wolves, we have bears, uh, we have cougars or mountain lions slash pumas, which could kill you very easily and just take you off, especially if you are a kid in a lot of these cases. Uh, that's n- never a big question. We have wild dogs, like feral dogs, essentially, that could do this sorts of stuff. We have... I know it's super rare, but if some of these cases were occurring in like, you know, southern border town Texas areas, we technically have jaguars in in America, so it's a possibility. Um, I don't know if you're down on uh, the East Coast and you're in or the the South, we have alligators that could easily kill you or drag you under, especially if you're weak or young. We have snakes. There are wild anacondas because people let them loose. And boa constrictors, they will very easily kill you if you're small and you're wandering around in the brush. Uh, We have poisonous snakes and poisonous animals. We have rattlesnakes, copperheads, uh, diamond heads. I don't know if that's a real one. Uh, Sorry, diamond heads and copper mouths. We have scorpions, spiders, bugs that will bite you and sting you and kill you. We have... uh, you know, we, Florida too. Florida has uh, crocodiles in southern Florida. So it's like these are all goddamn possibilities of killing someone and just taking you away and eating you. And then there's scavengers on top of all of that afterwards. So like the idea that someone isn't you know scooped up and a lot of these cases involve people who wander off or are a part of a group but maybe got lost for a moment, even if in a split second. It could, you could be taken out. It's not a hard possibility. So ultimately, I personally think the idea of missing 411 and the idea that people are going missing in national parks, yes, is a bizarre thing. But it is only bizarre in that given context. Because the broader context is that the missing 411 involves a very, very, very hand-picked and hand-selected collection of cases ranging across a hundred years. 
stemming across an entire continent of people, you know, thousands of miles, and only in specific areas where quote-unquote clusters are deemed. That, to me, puts it less into the weird aspect of things, the, the mysterious aspect of things, and just puts it into, that's neat, you know? That's interesting. That, that's, that's an interesting correlation uh, that that just happens to be a thing. Now, I'm sure there's more cases out there that do fall under that umbrella, but that at its core, that's neat. How many people go missing a year? Oh, you know, five times that number in a year compared to the 200 years that you have been studying of cases. So I don't know. I, I don't think missing 411 is a thing, but it is. <laughs> if that may, so missing 411 is only a thing because missing 411 says that it's a thing. I personally don't think that there is any, you know, secret conspiracy going on. I don't think there's any government cover-up going on. Me, I personally, if anything, I think the government just might be underfunded or too inept to cover all these things. That's more than likely the better outcome. But I don't think that there is a dark narrative here. I think, unfortunately, people have just gone missing a lot of people go missing or die in the wilderness every year. And this dude just chose a collection of events and wrote a book about it. And then people latched onto it because it, you know, it was, ooh, spooky the woods. And a lot of city folk got on board and blew it up into something that it did not need to be. And now this dude has like 11 other books. So I don't know. That's my two cents on missing 411. That's pretty much what we have for today's episode i know it's a bit of a rambling runoff for this one but it, it it's my the way the best way i felt uh to present uh this story that this topic because again this has been used so often a lot of shows have covered it and i think that uh this is probably the better way to present it uh based off what i can provide based off of how i feel uh, on the matter i don't want to do an hour-long episode of me talking about stuff that I don't personally believe in. So, you know, teach their own. And I, I do hope you guys learn something new. Uh, if not, obviously, if you want to fact-check me based off the stuff I used, uh, the resource links are going to be down below in the description. You can check on them for all the citations I've used. And the that's it. That's all I really have. <laughs> I don't have more uh, uh, ramblings to talk about at the end. But yeah, I, I hope you guys did enjoy that episode, the second one for the Conspiracy Theories Month, uh, talking about the missing 411 theory here in North America that has blown up and spread across the globe. And uh, if you guys have any of your own two cents on the matter, feel free to reach out to me. You know, you can email me or you can reach out to me on social media. It's Realm of Unknown everywhere. Um, if you wish to support the show, it would really, really, really go a long way to helping us out. Uh, you could do so over at patreon.com forward slash realm of unknown for our one, three and five dollar tier lists. You will get a bonus episode every week after these main installments, along with other bonus series. 
monthly polls, behind the scenes content, and some goodies from investigations that I've been on here in Pennsylvania and around Philly for the most part. Uh, otherwise, though, if you can't help out financially, I totally get it. Uh, sending a review wherever you listen to podcasts would mean a lot, and it really does help a lot with the algorithm. Uh, so you can do so over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts and that they allow you to leave a review. But until then, guys, I hope you guys had a fantastic time learning about missing people in the woods. And until next week's episode or until the Keystone Curiosity episode uh, over on Tuesday, uh, I hope you guys have a fantastic time. And until then, remember to stay spooky. Spooky.